Charles Beams is a triple threat. He's worked for the government, has managed a billion dollar investment portfolio, and now leads two private companies. Beams is currently the chairman of cybersecurity firm Spider Oak and executive chairman of small satellite manufacturer Yorkspace Systems. He also co-founded the Small Sat Alliance and previously ran late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen's Vulcan Aerospace. He also worked extensively in intelligence, retiring from the Air Force as a colonel and during the Obama administration oversaw the acquisition process for the Defense Department's space and national intelligence programs. Beams, who to be clear has not received a government briefing on this topic, seemed like a very good person nonetheless to add some broader context to the downed Chinese high altitude balloon which the Pentagon has also just disclosed, was not the first to breach sovereign airspace over the continental United States. I actually personally think it was, it was a deliberate kind of um, <laughs> trial balloon, if you will, right? Just to, to learn how we would react, see how we, we would react to, to such, a, such a sort of slight provocation, but sort of a deniable provocation. In this episode, we discuss satellite sleuthing, cybersecurity in space, and what it was like working for the original space billionaire. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Uh, there's, there's so much to get to with you. Um, and I think what's so unique about you is the fact that you have a background in intelligence, you have a background in commercial space and in the private sector and investing. And you also have a background with the DOD and, and on the national security side specifically. Um, so I do because of that and because of this like unique intersection of all these expertise that you carry, I do want to start with this balloon situation um, because it did capture the public's attention and um, and we're still finding out more details, uh, whatever details are, you know, however limited they are to the public. Um, and, but it raises questions about A, why a surveillance balloon when you have all these constellations of satellites orbiting and B, the fact that we've had previous surveillance balloons from China come through the US apparently, as we've just learned why our satellite constellations weren't able to pick them up. Yeah, there's a whole lot to uh, digest, a whole lot to process from what we've learned, I think, over the last week. Um, uh, you know, I, as, you, as you mentioned, I have a background. My early background as an engineer was in, in, in the surveillance business, satellites mostly, but I also did aircraft. And, and so there was a time when, when the U.S. was looking at, at, at high-altitude uh, airships for, for that, that purpose, only because the, the, there was a thought that perhaps it could be a cost-savings thing, a way to get more performance because it's closer to the ground. But what we what we learned way back when, we called it near space back then. These are, you know, at 100,000 feet kind of thing that it there there actually have to be fairly sophisticated uh, designs in, in order to survive at those altitudes um, and to navigate and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the normal quote weather balloon that we, we think of that that is that's not what uh, would would work, frankly, and and I'm, you know, I haven't been briefed on anything, but uh, everything I'm reading, and uh, and and the, the some of the photos that have been released, um, they seem to indicate that this was this was more sophisticated than a quote, you know, old school weather balloon. So it'll be interesting to see when they exploit, uh, you know, the recovered uh, material to see what you know what it what it was really doing, what kinds of capabilities it had. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll learn more. Um, I, I I actually personally think it was. It was a deliberate. It was a deliberate kind of um, <laughs> trial balloon, if you will, right? Just to to learn how we would react, see how we we would react to to such a such a sort of slight provocation, but sort of 
a deniable provocation. Um, I think they're they're feeling their way in the in the great power competition themselves, this new one, and they they I'm sure they learned a whole lot about uh, public the public reaction, um, US, our U.S. government reaction. I think the acknowledgement that that others have gotten through we didn't even know that's pretty frightening, frankly. Um, so hopefully we learn we learn a whole lot from it and, and we adjust things accordingly. Um, you know, in our in our budgeting cycles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and certainly those are some of the conversations I've had with other folks that um, would, you know, be deeply sourced uh, where something like China is concerned uh, about this idea that maybe to your point, there's a more psychological element to this and kind of testing the boundaries. Um, So say it is a high altitude surveillance balloon. What what can be done? I guess just to dig into the capabilities of that versus versus space versus satellites, which which we have these robust networks that are getting in low earth orbit that are getting bigger by the day. I mean, what, what does a balloon do that a satellite doesn't? Well, it's a good question. And, and there are things, there are certain types of uh, reconnaissance missions that, that are enhanced significantly by, by uh, flying closer to the earth's surface. Uh, we, we obviously still have reconnaissance aircraft, right? They're well-funded. They're in the pre- they'll be in the president's budget. Uh, when he releases it in March. And, um, you know, these platforms do uh, very sensitive things. Uh, in fact, we we do fly uh, reconnaissance aircraft, uh, you know, in internet, over international water. We don't violate international air or national airspace when we do it. But we do, we, we fly um, with, with a certain amount of standoff range um, with, with, with reconnaissance aircraft. So, so it's the, the idea that we can do everything from space. Eventually that'll be true. And as you know, I'm a big, I'm very biased toward that kind of thing, but, but there are specific types of signals uh, that can really only be detected um, and then, and then therefore exploited uh, if you're, you have to be close enough um, to them to, in order to do that. So what exactly they were uh, doing, I, I, I I was actually hoping that they would just capture the balloon, not shoot it down and minimize the damage, because I think we could have, uh, there's a whole sort of field of work called uh, foreign, foreign material exploitation, where there are experts that actually do this sort of thing. They exploit uh, captured you know, enemy um, hardware and software and, and can sort of reverse engineer and, and learn a whole lot. Hopefully the, the Navy, uh, I saw pictures the Navy has, in fact, it was on CNBC, they've, uh, they've, um, uh, recovered, you know, pieces of it already. And, and so we'll see what they come up with, what kind of conclusions they come to. Before we move on here, just basic question. How do you capture a balloon that large? I mean, it's massive. Well, it's it's large, but, you know, we have a lot of capabilities. I can't talk about. But we, we have a lot of capabilities, and we have an incredibly agile and very innovative sort of um, response, just say that response seems. I, I'm not saying it'd be a clean capture. It wouldn't be something like out of a you know, a James Bond movie or something like that. But we, I think, I think we could have done, we have aircraft that fly very high altitude. We have ways that could have, in my, in my estimation, could have um, gradually brought it down, you know, for, kind of forced it down, if you will, um, gently. Uh, I don't know, but that, that's just, that's a minor point. I think, I think the bigger point is, is kind of what you said others have brought to your attention, which is, is that, um, I think this was more of a psychological thing than anything, actually. I think this was a test. It, 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 it's kind of frightening, right? It's, it, it, we feel violated as a country by this. I think the American people do. And um, 
and that's to be expected. Um, and, uh, you know, they call it, you know, it, you're, the, the airspace over a country is considered sovereign, right? That's by international law. That's not, that's not in dispute. It's very, very, it's called out in lots of different, um, uh, you, you know, United Nations and, and treaties and just all kinds of things that that is, in fact, that's why we do our most sensitive. It's why we don't violate when we fly our reconnaissance aircraft, we do not violate other countries' uh, sovereignty. We don't overfly them ever. Um, and we, and, uh, we, if we need to do that kind of stuff, we do it with satellites because that is not a violation of international law. So that, I think that's an important thing for all of us to remember. And that law exists because it's a recognized psychological, you know, it's, a, it's almost like a terror thing. It feels that you feel, um, like, wait a minute, how can they just come in like that and just do whatever they want? So, so how does it speak to this great power competition? Um, between the U.S. and China, um, this strategic uh, competition, and whether we're entering a new chapter where it's concerned. And I ask that because you have new technologies, you have new capabilities, and there's this growing sense that any kind of conflict or tension, heaven forbid, mm. and obviously would like to deter that, but that it's going to start in some of these quote-unquote newer warfighting domains, like, for example, space or cyber. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good question. And, and we don't really know, candidly, uh, the, the whole, just talking about like cyber war, space, that kind of thing. We don't know how that is actually going to play itself out. There's, there's the cat and mouse game, the tit for tat thing that's going on right now. But the reason why we don't know is because that sort of world is not easily deterred, right? It's because it's not bullets. It's not soldiers shooting at soldiers. It's not nuclear weapons. It's it is, it's disabling either temporarily or permanently um, other, another country's sort of capability and being able to deny it. And, 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 and that's, that's a tough thing to deter somebody from doing. And especially when in the information age that we live in where information is everything, it is the gold uh, of, of, of how economies run, how, how wars are, are, are fought. Um, and so we, we really don't know. It's, it's very, in, in, in a sense, in the cyber sense, just like in, in, you know, in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, we really didn't know what to do until George Kennan came up with, with all of his great work in, um, deterrent, in his you know, deterrence theory and containment uh, strategy and all that. We, we, we really didn't know what to do. And I think, I think there's a lot of really smart people I didn't want to do policy-wise. Like how do we as a nation, to your point about the great, great power competition, how do we, how do we uh, posture ourselves um, politically, diplomatically, economically? Um, I, I occasionally publish pieces on the economics of it all. I, I think our best, as a country, our best play is our economic might. So leveraging that with commercial technology. Um, and that way we kind of get, we get a, a strong defense but it doesn't come at the expense of the economy. It actually helps the economy because a lot of defense spending is really, it's almost like putting, it's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's really like putting money in, into a hole in the ground, right? It, it kind of, whereas if, if you leverage commercial things, you're sort, of, it's, you're sort of lifting all the boats. Which it seems like NASA actually, our civil space agency has been faster to adopt, you know, business models around this idea of public-private partnerships, and now the DoD is starting to follow suit, um, albeit maybe a little more trickily. Um, yeah. But uh, 
how are you working towards that then? Because I know you have spider rope and then yeah. you also have York space systems. Well, you know, uh, it, it's another great question. I, I, I'll i just say that um, you're absolutely right. Lori Garver really deserves the credit for the, the, you know, she was the spark plug, frankly, that got the public-private partnership thing going with the space business. And, um, and, uh, and, and but now I would say interesting, and, and they've continued that path. And I think that we wouldn't have, but for the work that, that folks like uh, Lori started and got going. And then there were those of us in the defense department side, it was harder to, to, to move that, uh, that very, very large bureaucracy, but we made, we made some, uh, some progress way back when. And I think, I think progress has continued to be made, but I would agree with you that NASA has certainly led the way that said, there's still a lot of work to be done. Right. And, um, I, what I find sort of interesting on that is that, um, we have on the in the Pentagon side, we have Frank Kendall and Frank Cavelli, two sort of old guard people, right? They're 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 sort of in my from my era of of growing up with the big school buses and all that kind of stuff. And there were some of us that were worried that when they when they came back to do their their, their big jobs, you know, as as, as very senior political uh, people, we were afraid that they were going to sort of uh, kind of go back to what they know. But it turns out they're they're blazing even even. Uh, even better paths, frankly, uh, on this commercial thing. Uh, I don't know if you kept up with it, but but the the space force now is, has has decided to make a huge pivot towards away from geostationary, large geostationary satellites, moving them to these proliferated low Earth orbit small satellites. Commercial, they want to leverage the commercial um, production lines, um, commercial software. So yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I've, I've been an advocate for this for a very long time. It, it, it certainly heartens me to see that 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 we're finally moving in that direction. It, it's because it's it's a, actually it's especially important for cybersecurity because because that threat because it's it's a software thing, right? So the the, the adaptation and the migration, the, the the countermeasures and the counter countermeasures on that are are rapid, and the the, the government system is designed for very for very good reasons to be very deliberate. We have a deliberative body that that sort of oversees all, because it, it involves, you know, death and, and the life and death of the nation. Um, but um, it doesn't, that's not fast enough in the cyber warfare game. And so, and also the, the methods by which to protect networks in the private sector are, it's very similar, frankly, to, um, there's some differences with things on orbit, but for the most part, there's a lot of similar needs. You know, one of the things is this zero trust um, technology that um, President Biden has signed out, and um, and that's that's the law of the land now within the federal government. So I can tell you that the folks at Spider Oak work, and and all the companies are working very closely with this administration to help flesh that out. What does that mean? Because it, it, you know, you have the president signs a big document, and then there's all kinds of little documents that have to be written, what are called requirements documents, and ultimately specifications for systems on implementation of that. And so everybody is is working to help. Uh, the government do the right thing and leverage that commercial technology like they want to do. I should note before we go any further this conversation that you're you're really essentially the guy. You were the guy at the Air Force that kind of helped to forge the way for SpaceX and Elon Musk to be able to even compete for contracts because at the time it was essentially a monopoly with ULA. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I I don't like to talk about that, but I'll just I'll just. Oh, okay. I, I, no, I'll say this. I mean, yes, the, the, you know, in fact, arguably I'm responsible for both, um, Morgan, because 
I worked for Pete Teets when we, when we formed ULA, right? And we thought that was the right idea because we had an oversupply of, of launch. And we thought that was the right idea. And my job was to sell that to Congress. And um, we were successful. Um, the idea was we were paying a lot of money for launch and we had an excess capacity. So the government had the bright idea, let's form a monopoly. And, and so that was, that's how ULA came into being. But, but then, then along comes this, this gentleman out of the, out of the tech world that says, I want to, <laughs> I want to get in the launch business, space launch business. And, and I want to go to Mars. And a lot of people sort of laughed at him in the beginning, um, actually, um, in the Pentagon everywhere. And, but there were those of us that, that were, took him seriously. I, I, I flew out and I met with Elon and, and Gwen years ago, back in 2003, when they just had a rented garage in El Segundo. And, and I could tell, I was asked to go out and kind of take a measure of the guy because no one knew him then. And uh, at least no one in my world knew him. And, um, and I, I report back, I said, I think he's serious. He hadn't even done a, a single Falcon 1 at that point. But I said, I think he's serious and I think we ought to encourage it. I mean, we, you know, in hindsight now, this was, this was years after the, you know, after the, uh, well, it was about, actually it was around the same time, but it was, he was at the time, see, he was going after Falcon 1. He was going after sort of what Rocket Lab does now, the, the, the single, the single stick kind of small, small thing. But um, I didn't know all the, all the, the plans he had going into the future, which are very exciting, but he did say he wanted to go to Mars. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely had a hand in convincing um, uh, Frank Kendall to, to carve out. There was, there was a, a, a big block buy of, of, um, for ULA rockets. And I said, well, I know he hasn't launched his Falcon 9s yet, but I think we need to carve out the ones that, he, that, that, that the Falcon 9 would be able to do if it existed on the timelines that he says he's going to be able to do it. Let's let him compete. If nothing else, we'll get a good price, a better price from ULA. And... Uh, we did that, and uh, and I think that helped. I think that helped because they did compete, and that helped them get those first, the first few, um, few first few satellites. The Air Force did not like me. I was no friend of the Air Force at that point because <laughs> they 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 had their prefer, preferred provider and all that. But anyway, that's all ancient history now. I'm I'm just proud that that um, SpaceX is just doing a great job. You know, um, like. Space is hard, they, the, you know, the Space Force now likes to say, and it's, it's not easy, that's for sure. I don't think it's as hard as it was when my father's generation was putting the man on the moon and all that kind of stuff. But, but um, it's, it's, you know, it's never easy. Um, but I'm a, I, I believe in markets. I believe in, in freedom if it, if it makes sense and, and, and um, it doesn't cause harm to anybody. And I think that everybody benefits from it. So talk to me a little bit about what that means now. Um, I guess let's start with Spider Oak because we just talked a little bit about cyber. We just talked a little bit about um, commercial space and 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 also the needs uh, from a from a securing space standpoint uh, where the government is concerned. So how do those two things intersect, and what does that mean where Spider Oak is concerned? Well, it it it, it the logic for me goes along this path. If, if for the people who are not really space people, all a satellite really is, it's a it's a it's a computer server that's on orbit, and it has some form of analog input. It can be a, a, a dish antenna, it can be a camera, and then it has it's solar powered. We all know that, uh, and then you know it transmits that information down or transmit through you know for communication. That's kind of oversimplified. But that's really what it is. So in that explanation, you understand it was all about data. Right. 
And so really, and that's why the generals in the Pentagon and stuff, they'll, they'll talk about how it is the, um, it's, they call it the soft underbelly of the space business because it's the most vulnerable part, the, the, the networks themselves. It's the easiest way to, um, to have, uh, to attack and deny us our own space capability. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what's, um, what's going on. And, um, and so the, the, to provision a, a secure space network, it isn't as difficult um, when it's in the old way where you just had one large satellite and just need to talk to a ground station and you could just encrypt it and that was it. But as we go now to these, to low earth orbit, much lower cost, and there's much more capability when you get it, you build what are called these mesh networks. Well, what you need is you need to think of them as, as again, lots of computers that are all talking to each other, but you need to have secure links between those satellites. And that is a unique challenge. Um, you can't just set up a VPN between satellites. It doesn't work. We've even tried that. It just doesn't work. So you need a software only solution because otherwise with the number of networks talking in a mesh, uh, you would, you know, three quarters of your satellite would just be crypto gear if you, if you did a hardware implementation. And that's what excites me, frankly, about Spider Oak. Um, that's why I put my, my, um, my money and my reputation, uh, behind it, because I think, I think it's, it's, I'm not saying it's the only solution, but it's the best solution I see right now to help the government. And then frankly, the commercial, all the commercial space companies to be able to talk to the government. Uh, a lot of the commercial space companies that are out there, these, these early stage ones, are doing amazing work, but they didn't. They don't have the background that I have personally, having, as you mentioned, from the intelligence community, um, and uh, and, this, and the, what was then the Air Force and, and all that. So I understand more about the challenges that that we have in in, in integrating things into what what we call now the, the space force, and everybody calls the hybrid space architecture. Um. How quickly can you, is this technology already being deployed or is this something that's being developed? Right it now? is, it is. We have, um, we have uh, demonstrated it on the ground. We've demonstrated it uh, in multi, like up to a hundred satellite configurations to demonstrate the ability to sort of ne 